Hi there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on Mushroom Hour, we're graced by the presence of Dr. Bill Sheehan and Gabriella D'Elia of the Fungal Diversity Survey, also known as Fundus. Bill is the co-founder and president of Fundus, and Gabriella is currently the Fundus Deep Funga blog editor. Fundus, as an organization, aims to increase scientific knowledge and public awareness of the critical role of fungi in the health of our ecosystems and to better utilize and protect them in a world of rapid climate change and habitat loss. They do this by equipping community scientists working with professionals with the reporting tools to document the diversity and distribution of fungi across North America. Now, Bill spent most of his career starting and running two national environmental policy nonprofits that promoted big ideas, zero waste, and extending producer responsibility for consumer products. And around the time he was getting ready to retire, he reconnected with his love of natural history through a fascination with fungi. Combining his experience running nonprofits with his scientific training and an appreciation for the power of grassroots action, Fundus unites several mycelial strands of his life. And Gabriella first noticed the marvelous mushrooms while she was walking around Seattle, Washington. After studying fungal ecology at school there, Gabriella embraced a perspective of holistic mycology, which views fungi as an ecology, medicine, a language, an ancestor, and a philosophy. Gabriella is the leader of the Fundus Local Project, Northern Utah Funga Community Science. She's VP of the Mushroom Society of Utah and founder of Moon Mushrooms, which focuses on mycology education and crafting tiny batch tinctures. It's time to learn from these two inspirational leaders about how we can all contribute to the ever-expanding lexicon of biodiversity through our own personal relationships with fungi. Bill and Gabriella, thank you so much for joining us on the Mushroom Hour. Yeah, thank you, Darren. So great to be on here. Uh, likewise, looking forward to it. Well, I always like to start in talking with any guest about how they got started in fungi. Obviously, in the introduction, we heard two vivid stories and got a little picture of how you guys started your relationship with mushrooms. But Bill, I am curious about that period of where you discovered this fascination for fungi. And then maybe tell us a little bit about the origins of the Fungal Diversity Survey, because I know you were the, the co-founder. Yeah. Well, as, as you said in the intro, I was busy saving the world when there was a wet spring about eight years ago that produced a lot of fungi. And I was just really surprised at how, after I'd studied small insects for years, I never noticed fungi. And I just became fascinated with them and went down the rabbit hole. I wanted to learn everything about him. Then I, well, let me back up a little bit about the origins of the Fungal Diversity Survey and how I got into starting that. Back in 2012, Tom Bruns, a UC Berkeley professor who you had on your show a while back, organized a meeting a meeting of mycologists, and there were quite a few amateur mycologists there, and they were exploring what it would take to create a comprehensive flora, they called it, of North American fungi. And he envisioned it would take millions of dollars for academics to do it. But of course, no money ever materialized. And about five years later, I got together with Steve Russell, 
a brilliant amateur mycologist from Indiana, and we decided to start a community science-led nonprofit organization to achieve the same goal. The focus was on getting amateurs to document fungal diversity with DNA sequencing. And that's how, how it got going. And in fact, it was a few years after this 2012 meeting that I really got bit by the fungus bug. But once I was bit, uh, all these mycelial strands sort of came together and it just made sense to start a, a national community science nonprofit, which I did. A pretty massive undertaking. And I definitely want to talk about that model versus maybe what we can call the Brunsian model of the academic millions of dollars, kind of pros and cons and why those choices were made. Uh, but first, Gabriella, how did you find yourself then connecting with Fundus, or as it was previously known, the North American Mycoflora Project? How did you get involved? And maybe that starts with, you know, how you got inoculated by mushrooms in the first place. Yeah, well, yeah, we all definitely became inoculated. And I think each of us fell in love in our own right pretty instantly. And it was definitely love at first sight for me as well. I always grew up, you know, close to nature in the mountains of Utah, outside a lot, dealing with massive snowstorms. But I really only saw the field mushroom, agaricus, a couple of species of agaricus growing in my yard growing up. And then I moved to Seattle for college. And, you know, there were mushrooms following me wherever I went, it seemed. And I was just amazed at these incredibly beautiful and diverse organisms that were just fruiting up from the ground, as we all seem to be. And um, I just started, you know, making my own observations and studying them in my own time. And through university, I had to choose more of a focus. So I thought I would add my already, my time spent what I'm doing on the side to the, the center forefront of my academic life. Yeah, it's been, it's been a wonderful journey. I think I really started, I, I followed NAMP, which is Fundus's previous name, the North American Mycoflora Project, for a few years. And um, it really wasn't until the, the name changed to Fundus that the organization really kind of took center stage on my radar. And that kind of hit me in a, in a way where I was, I felt like, whoa, this organization kind of leveled up to me in a way, you know, it's like, oh, they're recognizing that fungi and funga, you know, is, is a really important emphasis uh, and a really kind of more current lens as opposed to, you know, the term mycoflora. And I'm sure we'll get a little bit more into that. But funga being, you know, the kind of biodiversity, uh, the distribution and biodiversity of fungi in a given geography. With the name change, I was like, what's this organization doing? I want to help them. This sounds great. This sounds super cool. And I just responded to a newsletter call that was looking for a blog editor. And now I kind of help in any shape that I can. Wow. So just being interested, being passionate, showing up, getting involved. And here you are intimately involved with the organization that inspired you. And yeah, let's get into it because North American Mycoflora Project is something I knew about. I've had guests reference it probably around the time the interviews probably happened around the time of the name change. And Talk about that a little bit, though, like how how Fundus has evolved from the North American Mycoflora Project, maybe how some of the ethos or maybe just the way that it executes its mission has evolved. Uh, Bill, why don't we get into that? 
Sure. Well, we renamed the organization a year ago from Mycoflora, which is an oxymoron uh, project, right. to, to reflect the fact that fungi are not plants, that they're their own kingdom. And it was actually, you know, when we started, we were we envisioned ourselves carrying on this thing that was set up by Tom Bruns, but it turned out to be uh, different in a lot of ways. And initially, we were focused on DNA sequencing, get, helping amateurs do, do DNA barcoding or sequencing, as it's called, of fungi, uh, you know, whatever seemed interesting. So since the name change, we've actually become more focused on fungal conservation. We, we want to be relevant to the future, and we know that fungi are just underlie all of ecology and you can't save plants or animals without saving fungi. So we want to apply this learning about the fungal diversity to conservation. And that's become a, a bigger focus in the last year. It sounds like too from that, it's not really cataloging for cataloging sake per se, but more with the direction on figuring out maybe what's rare or under threat. Is that kind of accurate? Yeah, I, I think that's definitely kind of the, the center of our organization is this, at this point is in the search of documenting fungi, where actually our aim and intention is to really document their rarity and you know put that put all the data, all the numbers of um, when and where and who is fruiting to some good use and actually do something with this data that is not only collected by perhaps professionals, but also maybe pro-ams or pro-amateurs or just community scientists. And so how does that work for you guys? You know, when you have people contributing to this massive database, are you tying in with iNaturalist? Are you tying in with, you know, one of the other mushroom observer, one of the other mushroom databases out there? Or where are you collating all of this amateur or pro-am, I like that, pro-am data? Where are you pulling that from? Definitely the two databases we use are iNaturalist and Mushroom Observer. And we're pretty agnostic about which one. iNaturalist is growing by leaps and bounds. And uh, I've heard that Mushroom Observer is getting serious about developing a field app now. And that will be good for that platform. Absolutely. And there's a lot they could do because, as you know, iNaturalist is designed for all organisms. Any macroscopic organism, whether plant, animal, or fungus, you can post it onto iNaturalist. But something that is important to know is that there's a lot of mushroom pictures posted on Facebook and Instagram. And I don't know about Reddit and Flickr and TikTok and, you know, all these <laughs> things. I mean, there's some pretty hefty numbers, but none of those platforms are database, which means they're pretty useless for science. They're right. definitely not useless for learning about mushrooms or for social networking, which is important about learning and, and appreciating. I use Facebook all the time. There's advanced user groups on Facebook where you can get your little brown jobby identified. 
But what I do and what I encourage other people to do is first put your observation on iNaturalist or Mushroom Observer, and then put a link to that in your post to whatever community you're you're posting on that is not databased like those other ones. And just to kind of tag along with what Bill's saying, part of one of Fundus's main programs is actually the diversity database. And what we're really stressing are high quality mushroom or macro fungi observations. And like Bill's saying, you know, so many people are getting enthused and interested about mushrooms and wanting to know what's growing in their yard left and right, because, you know, none of us have really learned much about them growing up. Like he's saying, it would be, it's so much more helpful to post your observation on INAT or Mushroom Observer. And there's also a whole plethora of, of you know, ways that you can help improve your observation and, fo- and with photos. And, you know, there's a lot of educative backbone that community science relies on that we're also help rise to the surface through this program, through the initiatives of community science observations being relevant to actual scientific improvements. Yeah. And that's another element of this is kind of training community scientists, if you will, training the amateur to be an effective cataloger of natural history and biodiversity. Uh, And you just kind of hinted at it there. But I know in the past incarnation of this project, there was funding going out to people to help them do DNA sequencing. So just a quick overview of maybe how you guys are empowering then community scientists to ultimately contribute to this database that you're getting useful insights about conservation from. The diversity database is kind of the the ground level, extremely important to fungal conservation, but it's the ground level for contributing. And my vision for fungal community science is that we need to crowdsource the documenting of fungal diversity, which anybody can do. And then a subset of those people are going to be motivated. They're going to want to get their their specimens sequenced. And a subset of those people are going to know that vouchering a specimen, which in a curated fungarium, is really critical for the highest level of science. And so that there's, I look at those as three levels. And I look at, actually, Gabriella just made a nice diagram of this where the, it's like three, four concentric circles around uh, the biggest one is document, and then there's sequence, and then there's voucher. And then in the center is super users, is what I call them, what we call them. And there's, and these are really your pro-ams that Gabriella just mentioned, you know, they're professional amateurs or amateurs operating at a professional level at a time when professional descriptive mycology has been shrinking for 50 years. And the professional mycologist expert taxonomists are retiring and not being replaced. They're being replaced by people in DNA labs and, you know, in laboratories rather than working in the field. It's just a super need for large numbers of amateurs who know their local land and territory and who can travel to get out and look for fungi and then 
make scientifically useful observations. And that's what the diversity database is about. But then we want those who want to go further or those who have found something rare and special to make sure that we get a dried specimen and sequence it and that we voucher those so that we're creating something that's really useful to science. Absolutely. And before we were talking about just the nature of the organization you put together, and obviously, I think for all of us, there's this beautiful vision of a decentralized network of community scientists that is kind of this big public good. You train people in science, you get people interested in their local ecology, and you're making these useful, sometimes, you know, nigh academic level observations with the help of, you know, your team and folks like yourselves. But is part of this also due to, and again, you hinted at it there with kind of the diminishing field taxonomy, is part of this due to funding and practicalities around that? Is there just not funding around field taxonomy and cataloging biodiversity like this? And maybe that can get into how you guys support and fund fundus. That is a, a pretty critical <laughs> issue right now is, is how we support fundus because we discovered in the last three and a half, four years that this is a massive amount of work and we are an all yeah. volunteer organization. And it's just way too much for mortals to do that are <laughs> without any money, any funding. We did have a, a, some initial seed funding way back in 2017 for sequencing for amateurs. And we've just given out the last of those grants and those specimens have to be in by the end of this year. And we have not replaced that. But we are very strongly looking for a sustainable business model and money to hire staff. And uh, several of us are, are looking at foundations that might see the value in fungal conservation and mobilizing this uh, crowdsourced army to go out and document these things. So we're working on that. And if any of your listeners have introductions to foundations or wealthy individuals that see the, the need for this, they could be in on the ground floor of supporting a whole new kingdom. The fungal kingdom has been pretty much ignored in, in science and natural history relative to plants and animals. And now we're realizing how important, critically important ecologically fungi are. This, what we're doing is, is important. It's not just fun, which it is fun. It's really interesting. Fund this, right? <laughs> fund us. <laughs> I know. Fund us, fungus, fund this. <laughs> so that's uh, that's where we are, and we're we're hoping we can keep this building and keep engaging people and growing. And as somebody who's kind of getting, perhaps in the younger part of my fungal days. I am just so excited about the future of Fundus. And I think that Fundus, being an organization that centers fungal conservation, is not only incredibly unique, but like Bill's saying, super important and is really one of the few organizations that are paving the way for, you know, a domino effect of other organizations and, and smaller localities to start noticing fungi in such a an essential ecological way. And 
for community science to be a large focus of an NGO or, or this fundus organization, I think is also very unique because community or citizen science fundus kind of, we will use both terms, but I think officially we really lean closer towards community science, just as it's a little bit less antagonizing to some folks, which is definitely understandable. And there is a very strong community in fungi as well. So I love that term, community science. But community science, you know, is really as simple as distributed scientific research, primarily conducted voluntarily in whole or in part by non-professional, amateur or pro-am people who are strongly um, drawn to the field through love and passion and um, just curiosity, which is like how much (laughs) more could you want? But for community science to be kind of elevated in such a way, I think is a big deal. Community science in this lens breaks down, you know, a large, a historically large barrier in the kind of more formal academic perspective of what science is and how you can make uh, large and valuable contributions to the science, the scientific realm. Fundus being an organization that not only values community science, but also gives and supports people with the tools to do so, I think is very unique. And um, having just almost anybody who loves fungi enough to help not only can provide us with the important number of data that has been thus far pretty deficient with fungal observations. You know, we need a lot more people noticing mushrooms and and when and where they're fruiting. But also I think having just communities of people getting together speaks to the heart of kind of a more philosophical approach of who fungi are and they act as the connectors of our ecosystems. There's, there's a very decentralized approach to how they exist in in the ecosystems. And community science really can improve the transparency and accessibility of conducting research and allowing it also to be fun and exciting. And, you know, one of my roles with Fundus is being a project leader for a um, Northern Utah Funga, which is a community science project where there are, I think, 220 recognized Fundus projects that are all kind of sub-projects of Fundus that are throughout North America and are collecting data on fungi. And part of why I love going out and doing this with community scientists and the mushroom season is, is because it's fun and I don't have to, you know, adhere to some quadrat and, you know, do all these intense measurements and go out during a certain time. We can just go out and see what we find and make notes, make really good, high quality observations and meet people and have a wonderful time connecting about mushrooms. Absolutely. And I think what you just laid out is something I wanted to ask about is how you guys connect with existing amateur mycology communities, existing amateur citizen, excuse me, community science projects and communities, because it seems like it's building this beautiful model that I see replicated in a lot of places right now, which is that decentralization support network where you have someone like Fundus taking massive amounts of data, gleaning useful insights, also providing kind of overarching protocols for each of these groups to follow that gets you some kind of standard of data and collection. 
and be really an invaluable service and something that I think is being pioneered by you guys right now. I think this is kind of be a huge shift in how research is performed. I think mycology is kind of at the forefront of that. I think it's happening all over biology. I know you said iNaturalist does all organisms, and I think we're seeing that change with all kinds of organisms, but fungi in particular, the diversity is everywhere. You just have to literally look at something. And that's, I think, part of the short-sightedness of what seems like funding disappearing from this kind of field taxonomy and exploration. And Because it seems like wherever, you, if you just decide to look somewhere and examine, there's some fungal ecology playing a role that maybe we didn't know about. So much undiscovered territory in this model seems like one of the only ways to really reach all that territory, complete that picture of fungal ecology. It's really exciting. And I want to talk about, you know, what that community looks like. And maybe, Bill, you can tell us about that, the evolution of that model I just described. I mean, maybe it's not even novel. Maybe you're going to tell me that model has been going on for a long time. But maybe how has this evolution happened? How has the mycology community that you guys support and work with changed even over the last decade? I think it's interesting the difference between in Britain, the professionals and the amateurs are together in one society, the British Mycological Society. Right. Here we've got an amateur society called North American Mycological Association, NAMA, and there's Professional Association Mycological Society of America, or MSA, and they're much less connected than at least in Britain. I don't, I don't know about other places. And I think what's what's happened in academia is that the funding for basic description of what exists, where and when, which is what we're focused on, which is documenting species. Species are absolutely the bedrock building unit of all other biology and ecology. You need to know what species you're dealing with. But funding for that, National Science Foundation does not fund that. They fund hypothesis-driven research. And I think that the kind of stuff that professional mycologists are working on is absolutely great research. But this whole, this whole question of what the species are that we're talking about and what the different qualities of individual species. I mean, fungi are basically chemical factories and they're going extinct before we even know what biochemicals they're producing that could be of great human benefit. Right. I, I think where we come in is doing this job that the academic mycology profession does not have the funding or the manpower to do. I mean, there are probably, there's just a couple of handfuls of professional mycologists that deal with either field biology or taxonomy. I mean, you might be talking about 15 or, or 30, I don't know, in, in North America. Then we've got, I, I think the numbers are interesting to look at. I was looking at some this morning. There's a lot of advanced amateurs, which I call super users, and they're really incredible. They are doing the work that professionals were doing 50 years ago in terms of documenting fungal diversity. And there's, I don't know, maybe 50 or 100 in North America. I'm sure you've had some on your show and you know some of these just incredible. They, they probably are better at fungal identification than you know most professional mycologists. Right. 
But those numbers are piddling. Whether you're talking about 30 professionals or 100 pro-ams, we have got a huge, the tens of thousands of species of macrofungi in North America. Many, many are not described or named. And there's almost 10 million square miles of land. So <laughs> there's just no way that these small groups can do all the work. That's why I'm focused on engaging amateurs to learn how to make scientifically useful observations, get them on to public database platforms like iNaturalist or Mushroom Observer, and continually up the quality of the observations so they're more and more valuable to science. But I mean, the numbers of, I mean, compare those, those small numbers I just said to, there's about 10,000 members in club, mushroom clubs that are affiliated with NAMA. So there's some big numbers there. Huge numbers on Facebook, the mushroom identification, Alan Rockefeller's uh, mushroom identification forum, almost 200,000. He can't possibly keep up with all that, though. I mean, he's amazing. He's identifying things in seconds sometimes, but yeah, we yeah. can't expect Alan to do it all. <laughs> no, no. But I mean, there's. I think we need this kind of crowdsourcing, I call it. This is, we're trying to engage the crowd to contribute high quality observations a lot. And just one other statistics I, I looked up uh, yesterday was that iNaturalist now has a quarter million observers who have posted 2.8 million observations of fungi just in North America. That's a quarter million observers. Wow. And so we're, I think a lot of those are just haphazard pictures that are not scientifically useful. It's just the top of the mushroom, you know, and it's out of focus. And it's a little thing over here. We've all contributed one of those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's an important part of this process is not shaming those people and welcoming welcoming them in. And and so part of the program that Gabriella was just talking about is we have a triager, Sam Bucarelli in, in Philadelphia is our currently our triager who goes through these all the new observations that are posted into a project on Nine Naturalist. And if you go to our website, you can see under database how to access that iNaturalist project. So she goes through observations that are posted to that and tries to filter out the ones that are really bad, but tells people gently, you know, hey, you know, if you just followed, did these few things, it would be more valuable to science. It tries to politely and gently encourage them to do more rather than to shame them about a bad observation. So that's part of that whole project right there. Talk about a massive amount of work, two plus million pictures. So clearly we need to empower fundus with more people to engage in this work. And that's something I want to talk about too, how you collate all this data to get useful conservation insights. But Gabriella, as someone who works on the blog and kind of what I imagine is on the front line with community, maybe talk about what you're seeing in terms of community engagement with the projects and then as someone who's newer to fungal observation, like myself and many listeners, talk about how we can contribute 
to this database effectively? You know, we have INAT, we have the basic tools. How do we get involved? So, yeah. Yeah, well, I'll first respond by saying that um, but there's so little that we know about fungi, right? And that's our main problem is kind of data deficiency, lack of observations. So figuring out, making scientific contributions, like we're saying, can be as simple as an observation, which, like Bill said, anybody can do. Um, it doesn't have to be sequencing. It doesn't have to be. It's just posting an observation to iNaturalist or Mushroom Observer or you know, sharing the information about fundus and how to find us with your friends. So much that is not known about fungi is particularly like population dynamics, you know, turnover and, and longevity of individuals, like what makes a species an individual, natural populations. This kind of stuff is simply from observing who is where and when. And um, a lot of community science can impact mycology, understanding the range, seasonality, frequency, variation. Really big questions can start to be looked at um, with just an increase of data that, uh, like we said, you know, if we left that to the professional mycologists who are stationed at a university somewhere, just simply would not get done. There are very few. Um, let's see, your other question was how would somebody get... Well, I threw like, I think three questions into <laughs> one there. Part of it was just seeing the community engagement. And, you know, as you guys need to pull this massive data to glean those kind of really critical insights that may not be as simple as a single hypothesis, you know, what that engagement has looked like, how you've seen people interact with Fundus, maybe projects you guys are doing to encourage interaction, uh, and then maybe walking us through, you know, a simple kind of observation or how to contribute. Yeah. Well, the community engagement, I think I have experienced with boots on the ground surveys, you know, with my NUF, Northern Utah Funga project. And I've also participated in, you know, a handful of other projects. I learned a lot about this, a, a lot about what entails a more scientific survey and, and observation process through another fundus project called Bridal Trails State Park project in Seattle, where I lived mm. for a few years, who that project is led by Daniel Winkler and Danny Miller. So for me to have the access to learn from such an incredible mycologist um, really ignited, you know, the fire to, when I came back home, be like, what we need, we need to infuse and inoculate this really um, actually quite large fungal community here. So in just unexpected, maybe to some places. I've been surprised. So my project personally, just speaking as like a microcosm of what the fundus projects could do for local communities, I've just been surprised about how people are patient enough to want to sit down with a species for 10, 20 minutes and look at them and spend some time with them, take photos, make observations. And it just gets me every time. I've only been leading this project for a year now, but people are actually exhibiting a lot more interest and passion than I thought they ever would. So I think there's a lot of potential for projects, for the project part and, and getting people boots on the ground, work in surveys with Fundus. And then um, diversity database, how to make an observation. Where do we go from here? So I, I can jump in and say what can become of all these data. One thing is that because Fungi in North America are relatively so little known, say, relative to Europe. There's a good chance if 
if you get to actually sequencing fungi, that you're going to be finding new species. I know Alan Rockefeller thinks it's like 20% of the stuff that he finds is probably new species. Which is exciting, yeah. And we found in just the sequencing we've been doing recently and really getting down in the weeds on how those sequences measure up with sequences in the, the big federal repository called GenBank, there's four to six percent on a very small sample are definitely new species. And there's a whole bunch more that are not in GenBank that we can't say whether they're new or not. So that's pretty cool. An amateur could find a something that's a new species. And that's because these things, many of them come up so infrequently, some once every 10 years or every 20 years. And if you're not in that spot at that time, you're not going to see it. But the other thing of about how these data will be used for conservation is important to realize is that we are talking with an organization called NatureServe, which coordinates the data for 50 state natural heritage programs, which are mostly, I believe, part of state agencies. So they are trying to protect species. Part of their job is protecting species on conserved land, on conservation easements, also public lands, public parks and whatnot. And their focus has been plants and animals, you know, mm. duh. <laughs> That's all we know is we don't Florida know. Fauna. So they're they're just really interested to get data on fungi. And that's where this data will ultimately be used in conservation is it will be used by these natural heritage programs on conserved lands. And they'll go into land managers will use them and they'll be in land management plans. And so that's, that's really the link to conservation. And that's a huge task from anyone who's worked anywhere near the environmental side of things. You need baseline data. So if you're going to implement protections for fungi, whether it be into legislation, you know, especially local legislation about building projects or development projects, you need this baseline map that people need to be aware of and then adhere to. And there's kind of this whole knowledge base that needs to get developed if you're going to effectively implement some kind of conservation like that. And you got at the heart of another big, big question I had, which is, you know, we have all these observations flowing in. You guys are helping support the amateurs and the super users and everyone in this beautiful decentralized network to contribute. And then how are you channeling it to gain these insights? You know, is it this process of fundus kind of filtering, maybe not all SAM, but, you know, people kind of filtering the observations and then channeling it to certain academic volunteers or certain research projects? What, what does that look like on that end? And maybe that was a perfect example, but but in channeling this raw data to then be used in some of these projects that have either a conservation bent or really any kind of utility. In order to protect species, in most of the world, it's called red listing, this IUCN organization um, International Union for Conservation of Nature has a red list, and it's and it's just hundreds of thousands of plants and animals, and only a couple of hundred fungi because they've been ignored. But here's the key: 
in order to get something on red listed, it's called as a verb, yeah. you need to be able to demonstrate that the population is declining. And to do that, you need a lot of data. So it's not just about finding new species. It's about documenting the same species over and over so that we can say if something is population is declining. The other way of doing it is kind of cheating, but it's, it's, uh, it's practical. And that is if, if you can demonstrate that a species of fungus is only found in a certain habitat, and if you know that that habitat is declining, there's a lot of different reasons habitats can be declining, and many are then you can infer that that specialist fungi, fungus, is declining as well. I just throw that in to say that it's, it's not all about finding new species. It's also about documenting when and where so that we can know what fungal species are at risk of declining or extinction. Which implies not only this massive quantity of observation, it'll still require that, but also over time, we're going to need to kind of keep that observation up to derive that kind of useful information. And then what about the rare 10 challenge? You know, what are some of the challenges that you guys are doing then to get people engaged and to start maybe sourcing? I don't know if it's specific information to go toward that red listing effort, but but tell us about some of the challenges. Sure. One of our, along with the, di- with the diversity database program, one of Fundus's focuses is the rare fungi challenges. And we have more coming out. Stay tuned on Fundus future rare challenges. But uh, you may have heard that we had our first rare fungi pilot that ran from October 2020 to March 2021, I believe. And it's the West Coast rare fungi challenge. So the West Coast of North America. And the rare fungi challenges were inspired by the British Lost and Found Fungi Project. But essentially, our rare fungi challenge for the West Coast was created with two or three main goals to collect data on incidence and distribution, to generate sequences, and to prepare vouchers, so to vouch specimens. And the West Coast Rare Fungi Challenge is still happening. The pilot is what we can kind of refer to for seeing how successful the challenge was. And we kind of implemented the pilot to see if this would work. You know, if we could get people interested in finding these 10 rare and or threatened species. um, And if this kind of format could work. And I think it seems to be pretty successful We had 10 species that the uh, conservation board agreed upon, and the project was so successful that we're actually adding 10 more to make 20 species to be looked for. But essentially, we have educational materials, we have PDF pamphlets, we have these species-wanted kind of layouts, and we employed anybody who was able and willing to go look for these 10 particular species in the West Coast to try their best and to submit an observation. After six months, the pilot had 91 verified observations of seven of the 10 target species by 62 observers. 
So I think that's a wonderful start for a pilot for such a challenge. And I think one of the main findings of this pilot was that there were actually two pretty large range extensions for two particular species, the Pachycodonia spathulata, as well as the Dictyocephalos attenuatus. Both of those mushrooms, the um, the Pachycodonia had a range kind of, I think, in central southern California, and there were large range extensions to the north as well as the south. And then with the Dictyocephalos fungus, that had appeared pretty predominantly in Southern California, though I believe it's it was first described in Nevada. But the Dictyocephalos has most of its observations coming from very South, very Southern California. And this West Coast Rare Challenge project, you know, out of this popped up an observation of the Dictyocephalos all the way up in Wyoming, which is a huge range extension for this species. Um, and also inspires, you know, a state like Utah that's in between L.A. and Wyoming to go out and look to see if we have this particular species in our backyard. And I loved that challenge. It was exciting. I knew a lot of foragers out here on the West Coast. You know, I'm based in Northern California. A lot of people were cognizant of it. They were suddenly looking for these species. I think a lot of people may be familiar with this concept of a mycoblitz, which is way more general. It's really interesting than to have rare fungi to focus on and try to find. And of course, it naturally feeds into this massive fungal diversity database because out of that, you get observations about range, you get more observations coming in. So yeah, I wanted to highlight that project because I thought it was really fun and exciting and I hope it starts up elsewhere. I just uh, want to give a shout out to Sigrid Jacob, who really uh, was the first coordinator, and now Kristen Swearingen up in Alaska and Lauren Ray in Washington State are the co-coordinators of the West Coast Project. And up in the Northeast, uh, Rick Vanderpoel and Liam Noakes are leading the Northeast Rare Challenge, which will be launched shortly and maybe by August. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm excited to see that come out. And you just highlighted something that I want to make sure we talk about too, is how people can get involved and contribute. And I think that's multifaceted, but maybe we can talk about, you know, how easy is it to start a local project and become a fundist project? And then maybe get into some of the other ways people can contribute, whether that's volunteering time. I don't know if it's possible to make donations, because I think this is something that if this entire community of mycophiles gets involved in, you know, after seeing different people on social media, whether it's fascinated by fungi, Gordon, or whether it's, you know, mycosymbiote, Wilpedia, I mean, we're talking about community of millions of people now that are interested in this. So how can we channel that and support Fundus? The means of participating in either the diversity database or a rare challenge, if you happen to be on the West Coast or soon in the Northeast, are on the website. So just go right to the website and you'll see all the information to participate in those and also to start a local fundus project. There's all the information is needed. And in fact, the, the top level words on the website are database, challenge and projects. So you just go there and drill down. But you can also donate and go to the website. And actually, Gabriella is just working with a, a new donation site. Do you want to talk about that, Gabriella? Yeah. So 
to get more involved, super simple. You can go to fundus.org. There's a get started toolbar at the top that can kind of uh, get you along your way. You can search for all the couple hundred of projects that already exist. There's many of which you can join. You can also start your own project. There's lots of you know small scale projects like looking at just the park that's in your neighborhood, um, or you can do a larger, perhaps more regional place. If you go to the website, there's just a donation button on the top right. And we're always looking and receiving and very grateful for any donations because that goes directly to, you know, this all volunteer ran organization and, you know, possible future programs, more sequencing. We could use all the love that we receive. <laughs> yeah, the new donation page is actually up and running on every dot org. That's kind of a newer social media giving nonprofit website. And you can just search for us, Fundus or Fungal Diversity Survey on every.org. The simplest thing to do is probably to just visit the website. And then another way to really connect with us, because, you know, we provide a lot of information in our newsletters. So you can sign up for our newsletter on the website, our e-newsletter. Being the Deep Funga blog editor, you know, we have a new blog post about every month or so. And we're always looking for new authors and contributors. And I think part of our community science platform is having more kind of open source, if you will, information available for pro-ams and people who are getting a little more advanced, mycologically speaking. And the blog, I think, can be a great resource for talking about projects and you know what type species are and getting a little more comfortable with perhaps once overwhelming topics but the blog is another great way to contribute and um yeah yeah i I would stress that if you're interested in learning more about fundus to definitely sign up for the newsletter and blog they're pretty low frequency but like that's where we put out information that we're looking for volunteers and in this area or that area that's where we put out a lot of interesting information and that's the way to keep in touch is just sign up for on the website under e-newsletter and then you'll get updates. And then if someone is listening to this and they're thinking, you know, I'm a bit of an amateur field mycologist and taxonomist myself, or I mean, who knows if there's someone who's really good at doing some kind of programming and they love mushrooms, where can people reach out to become volunteers for Fundus? Try info at fundus.org. So that's F-U-N-D-I-S dot O-R-G. And just shoot us an email. And boy, we are always looking for people to help with uh, the website programming with sequencing analysis as a it takes a lot of time and expertise and uh, for somebody that's got that expertise who could really use help there, but it's mostly just a community science program or project lives and dies by how much communication there is. And that takes a lot of time. And especially if people have questions and uh, we need people, people on duty 24 seven to answer them. (laughs) So there's, there's always a lot to do. I would like to mention that, you know, if you're making mushroom observations on iNaturalist already, add Fundus or Fungal Diversity Survey, add that project to your observation. And that is how you participate in our diversity database. So that goes for mushroom observer, perhaps in 
more of the future when they're when I, th I don't think we're really are we, is the, is no. Mushroom Observer? Yeah. It looks like we'll have a similar project on Mushroom Observer pretty soon. And we've got a, a volunteer who's willing to manage it. Joanne has been working with the Mushroom Observer people. And so we're hopeful that that will come online and there'll be two platforms to mm -hmm. participate in. So yeah, Mushroom Observer, kind of the databases will be coming soon for that. And, you know, you can tag your old observations, all of your observations and future observations. And if you are, you know, a little bit more experienced, you can continue participating on iNaturalist with identifying, making identifications on observations of the fungi that are tagged in our project as well. And you can, you can kind of more slowly be absorbed in Fungal Diversity Survey. And I want to highlight and like triple underline that. I think it's so mm -hmm. important. That was probably something I should have asked right out of the gate is how do we contribute to this database and make sure our observations are effectively carried over? Step one is you go on iNaturalist, find the project and join it. You have to join it first. Mm -hmm. And then it'll appear down on your, at least on the website. Yeah. And then every time you make an observation, you have to add the observation to the project. And it's just a very simple click and you're done. We've got uh, some of the best identifiers in the whole North American community are looking at those observations and identifying them. You know, people like Elsa Valinga and Alan Rockefeller and John Plischke. Yeah. I mean, it's I love the word open source because it feels that way. It's an open source community science model. And I know so many people get really passionate about fungi and mushrooms. They discover them. It's a window into greater ecology. And they're looking for some way to channel that. And obviously, you guys are still developing what this model looks like. But I think it's a great place for people to put that passion and energy into, whether it's just joining the project, contributing your observations, whether it's reaching out at info at fundus.org, contributing your skills and your knowledge base, whether it's putting a donation forward to help support teams of volunteers and hundreds and hundreds of hours of time, you know, Bill and Gabriella and everyone else putting their time into the project. I think it's just one of those amazing places to channel this love of mushrooms and fungi that actually can make a tangible difference to some of these huge questions that we all know and that we all love about mycology. The questions of diversity, what's where, how, when, I mean, these are how you can make a substantive contribution to that kind of project. And I did want to make it a little personal too, and just ask each of you about your own relationship now with Fundus. You know, maybe I'll start with you, Bill, and just what this has been like for you, you know, having a career, you said at the beginning, saving the world or trying to save the world, you know, running nonprofits, big organizations. What has it been like for you to take this project on where you're kind of on the ground level of this novel community science project. You know, throughout my career with environmental policy, as well as, as uh, and nonprofits, as well as Fundus, what really keeps me going is working with passionate people like Gabriella. You know, mm -hmm. it's just that passion is just, just like love, you know, and it's just feels so good. And it takes place of money in a lot of ways. Um, <laughs> Yeah, you can't uh, totally live without money, but it's uh, Both are helpful. <laughs> <laughs> that's what drew me into this. And that's what keeps me going is the passion of the people out there that I work with. That's beautiful. And, and I mean, Gabriella, the same question. What has this been like for you 
someone who came to fungi and mushrooms and now you're in this role of creating projects and being involved with fundus how has this helped shape your relationship with fungi and just affected your course even more generally well, first off, I want to say how grateful I am for fungus people. They're really good people. So, I, <laughs> yeah, having, you know, a community of people who just love helping each other and creating a bigger and larger and more of a platform for fungi is just super fun. Yeah, I've, I've just really always been participating and learning wherever I can. And it's brought me to Fundus. And I mean, I remember receiving the the email, like I mentioned, that they're looking for a Deep Funga blog editor. And, you know, having also studied philosophy in school, I was like, Deep Funga? Like, that sounds right up my alley. Like, I should have thought of that. And now I'm like, oh, yes, it's everywhere. Everything's Deep Funga. A new school of philosophy. You heard it here. Yeah. I mean, I yeah, I think fungi have a, a strong foothold in uh, many things, including conservation of biodiversity. But um. I think Fundus is just only in its kind of baby stage. And I'm really looking forward to where the momentum takes us. And I do want to mention that, you know, there are dozens of people on our on our board meetings and in conservation meetings. And, and this is such a volunteer effort and it has come a long way. And there are many people who are really looking and joining forces together for fungal diversity conservation to explode, you know, and, and to be a, when you say, oh yeah, I work in fungal conservation, people don't just like stare at you and they're like, what? You mean like the pathogens inside of our feet or something, you know, and have people right. really understand that fungal conservation is a real thing and it's extremely important. I, I think fungal conservation, if we have fungi more in our consciousness about how we approach conservation, it will, I think, reorient us to how we steward the land and, and you know, w- how people even think about how we are related to land and how connected everything really is. Well said. So you discover new schools of philosophy <laughs> and ways to shape consciousness indelibly. I think those are two, two beautiful insights. And then about the future of the organization, it is in this infancy form. Of course, we've been saying how people can get involved, contribute to this beautiful open source platform that can grow and support so many projects and our collective understanding of fungal diversity into the future. And I know we've talked about the rare find challenges, but are there any other plans? And these can be kind of anything you want, but, you know, Bill, have you had thought of any other ways? You know, we talked about the Nature Serve project, but any other ways that you think this fungal diversity database will be used and how you hope to see that used in the future, or maybe it's too early to tell, and that's fine too. But I think what we need is large amounts of high quality data. So it's quantity and quality. And once you have that, you can do ecological research, you can do studies. And so we're basically creating the database that can be analyzed by scientists And I always like to look at eBird, which has been around for decades and has tens of millions of dollars and all this kind of stuff. But they had 169 million observations last year, just last year, worldwide, but last year, one year. And they're up approaching a billion total observations. And when you get that kind of and they also have good quality control, they have like 1100 volunteers that are looking at 
the observations that come in and and flagging ones that look suspicious and you know they go check them and so that kind of quality control is is really impressive but when you get up to scale of good quality data you can then scientists and ecologists and conservation biologists will want to use that data to answer important questions so for example ebird now has uh, a couple of years ago it was 300 it's probably 400 peer-reviewed scientific papers have been published using ebird data so we need to get enough quantity and quality of data that we can start answering big ecological and conservation questions about fungi. I guess that's the the long-term deal. And just one other thing, since you, diversity of what plants might be, sequencing is really important for fungi. With a plant or an animal, you have an individual in space and time. With a fungus, the body is hidden in the substrate. And it may or may not come out to produce a sporing body at a certain place or time. So it's the vegetative body, the mycelial mass, that is the center of the fungus. And of course, that's not obvious. And it doesn't have characters you can see like you can with most plants and animals to describe it as a species and whatnot. So DNA sequencing is ever more important for fungi than for plants and animals. So one of the big things that I'm hoping we will realize in the next couple of years is it's called high throughput sequencing. And right now we're using a kind of sequencing called Sanger, which is really good, but it's really expensive. And so we can't do very much of it. But with high throughput sequencing, I think we'll be able to tack on sequencing to more and more of the big uh, database we need to create. And that's really significant, important for science. Is It's just such an important character to know the DNA. Well, right now we just look at the barcode, but that whole universe, that whole scientific uh, area is just growing by leaps and bounds. I mean, the Sanger sequencing of fungi only came in in the mid-90s, and Tom Bruns was a pioneer there. And so now the university mycologists, the professional mycologists, have all moved on and are using more and more high-tech equipment and doing whole genome sequencing and on and on. But we, we need a high-throughput, cheap, sequencing technology and that's on the horizon very soon i think we're going to be seeing that and does that look like something that community scientists would engage in or is this something that fundus could be the bridge to this high throughput fundus would then be able to take people's observations maybe specimens and hopefully maybe like you said in a few years give them access to that kind of high throughput sequencing Well, the model that we're doing with most people right now is that we're taking dried specimens and sequencing them for them. I mean, there are a few super users that do do this in their kitchen, Sanger sequencing. (laughs) But now when you get to high throughput sequencing, it's a a different ballgame. And there, the, the biggest, I believe the biggest challenge is 
the bioinformatics because you just throw lots and lots of sequence reads in a soup and then you get you know machines to read it and putting that all back together with uh, specific individual specimens right. is a huge task for bioinformatics i don't see how that can be a a community science endeavor but i tell you there's a few people out there that i'm talking to that are hell-bent on on wading into that like damon ty i don't know if you've had him on the show or craig trester is, is another one and i'm talking to some people in in uh, australia that are are doing this as well so there's people working at the edges i, I don't know what it's going to look like in five years but i, I think that part of it where community scientists are doing the bioinformatics on high throughput sequencing is maybe a little bit farther off, but we'll see the benefits of high throughput sequencing within a couple, three years, I think, I hope. A very exciting future. Yeah. And whether that's this community of mad scientists developing these techniques to do in your kitchen or whether <laughs> Fundus provides us this channel get access to some of these genetic tools and then maybe access to the expertise that comes with reading sequence data, getting into clades and what organ, I mean, that's kind of where some of the hardest work begins. And we would need an organization that has, that's able to offer that experience to help power that in any great quantity, I would think. So really, really, really exciting future. Uh, Gabriella, remind us all the different places to connect with Fundus. I'm sure everyone listening you know, wants to contribute to the projects, everything else, but where can people connect, follow, and engage? Yeah, so you can sign up for our bi-monthly newsletter and occasional blog posts at the website fundus.org, or you can go to fundus.org slash resources slash email list. You can start or join a Fundus local project. You can start contributing observations to the diversity database via iNaturalist and learn how to make more scientifically valuable observations, perhaps through our resources or perhaps one of our project's resources that's near you. And for our rare challenges, if you're in the West Coast, our West Coast Rare Challenge is ongoing. We have 10 rare species to find. You can view them on our website. We're about to add 10 more species soon. And our Northeast Rare Challenge will be underway. It's an up and coming challenge. So look out for that one soon. And for people who frequent social media like Instagram or TikTok, yes, uh, do you guys have... <laughs> you can follow us on Instagram at Fungal Diversity Survey. You can find us on Facebook. We're always looking for, for blog posts as well, too. So it's a great way to help our community out. Fantastic. And I could see a way too of people who are already doing great fungi related content, mushroom related content, contribute to Fundus and just kind of build this organization up. It's it's a really exciting prospect, I think. Definitely exciting to get involved with. Well, thank you both for giving us so much information about the organization, about Fundus, what the insights might glean into the future, what kind of the frontiers are. But I want to wrap things up with three questions I like to ask all of my guests. Uh, and maybe I'll start with you, Bill. And I know this can be a really hard choice sometimes, but just give us a mushroom or two or three if you're so inclined, a mushroom you love and why. And we can expand that to say any fungus. It doesn't have to be a showy mushroom, but a mushroom or fungus that you love and why. Well, that's easy for me. The, my favorite one I call the bubblegum fungus. 
called Rhytoporia ostrosinensis. And I've got a, a YouTube video of a colleague digging into a pine log. And what's neat about it is that it's mycelia stretched like bubblegum. So it rots. It's a crust fungus that rots both hardwoods and pines, which is kind of interesting in itself. And it, the mycelia just overtake everything inside the log. And so you can actually dig into it with your fingers and pull it apart and the mycelia stretch. And it looks just like bubble gum. And I thought that was cool because when I found this thing, you know, four or five years ago, there were very few, few records of it on Mica Portal or anywhere else. And almost none of the records mentioned its stretchiness. And I thought, this is such a weird thing for a crust fungus to do or any right. fungus. How could you describe it and not mention its stretchiness? So I don't know, maybe they had dried specimens of people that were posting those things. If a fungus was like bubble gum, that would, yeah, you'd think that would be the defining physical characteristic. I yeah. love that video, Bill. I watched it. It's wonderful. <laughs> We're definitely going to find that video and put a link uh, in the interview notes because we all need to see that. And then the same question to you, Gabriella, a mushroom or fungus that you love and why? Yeah, I want to mention that it's funny that Bill said that the nobody had noted that the mycelia stretch. And that to me happens so often. I don't know if it's just me, but every time I have not every time, but pretty often when I have a, a specimen that I've brought home from the field, it'll taste or smell or have like a, a different characteristic that is not in you know any of the books I have. And I take note of that. But, you know, that could contribute to the fact that, you know, all of our a lot of our known species are from the European species and is yet to be studied here in North America with sequencing. But um. Yeah, I get this question so often being a, a fungus person, you know, I think it's a great question to start talking about mushrooms. And I have to say that I, I pretty much am like many others. It's very difficult to find my favorite child, but all experiences, I think nothing can compete with the experience of finding and seeing and being with a mushroom and just like, you know, even describing the mushroom can't even come close to just being there and feeling it and smelling it. But I will definitely choose one for you. And I will go with a, a more recent find, I think last week, something we just found with the Northern Utah Funga field project. It's always just fun to keep things, you know, relevant. And I, I like one that we found last that I really enjoy the common name. It's called the plums and custard mushroom, if you've heard of it. I think it's a beautiful common name. And it's Trichelomopsis rutilans. It's a beautiful mushroom, yellow gills, white spores. And um, Rolf Singer described the genus of Trichelomopsis as being somewhere in between Tricholoma and Clitosopy. So it's this kind of enigma a bit. And it's just purpley red on the cap with some bright yellow gills. And it's just one of those iridescent fungi mushrooms that are really difficult to verbalize. And I was frantically typing to look this up while you were speaking, and it's a beautiful mushroom. Obviously, I'm not having the same impact as if I found it, but still something awe-inspiring about that mushroom, even discovering it digitally, if you will. Some great mushrooms, guys. Thank you for bringing those to our attention. And then another bigger, broader question, and maybe we'll start with you, Gabriella, and then go over to Bill. 
But what has this relationship that you've developed with fungal organisms given to you? And you can pick anything you want out of that. Lessons they've taught you, deeper insights you've gained, maybe new spiritual understandings. What has this relationship with these organisms given to you? Oh, so much. What a beautiful question. As briefly as I can say it, probably a greater presence with any organism, being humans or or mushrooms. And um, yeah, fungi have so much to share, whether it's uncoding genetics and and understanding so much more of their ecological principles and, and scientific mycelial functions. But I really enjoy personally thinking, perhaps a bit more feeling about feeling with the fungi and you know, inviting, I think mushrooms can really invite us to slow down and become much more aware of our surroundings. Beautiful, beautiful. I think they definitely have that effect on so many of us. And then Bill, for you, again, a massive question, but what is that relationship with fungi given to you? Well, I, I, I mentioned previously the opportunity to connect with other passionate naturalists is definitely a big part, but also endless fascination with a whole kingdom that is new to me in the last decade. It's poorly understood scientifically, but it's, you know, I'm so used to seeing plants and animals animals and thinking that the world is composed of plants and animals. And then the more I learn about fungi and how important they are ecologically and how diverse they are, it just blows my mind and it's just endlessly fascinating. A blown mind and constant fascination is an amazing gift for anyone to receive. So I love mm-hmm. that answer. And this mm-hmm. kind of piggybacks on that. But as we move forward, moving into the future, as an organization like Fundus evolves, we see other organizations supporting mushrooms and fungi pop up as our collective consciousness becomes more aware of these organisms finally. As that keeps happening, What's kind of your highest aspiration, Bill, for how that can change our society? And again, this is a massive question, but if you know there's some insight or summation that you think of how it can beneficially impact human culture and society. Well, I think that the best outcome would be if we learn to work with instead of against fungi in agriculture, forestry, land management, and generally, I think that that would be the, the best outcome. Used to seeing fungi as, as pathogens and athlete's foot and stuff like that, and, but they're just so important to everything else in the natural world that we need to learn to work with them instead of against them. I think that insight could be underlined and shouted from the mountaintops. And uh, yeah, I think we all hope that is what keeps and keeps happening is people learn to work with fungal organisms. And, and Gabriella, for you, another kind of aspiration as our society becomes more familiar and intimately related to fungi. I think a little more logistically, I'm so excited for forest ecosystems to be protected and way more understood and stewarded with our understanding of fungal ecology for the future of decomposing mycelial-based construction products and packaging products. I mean, there's just so much possibility that's, I think, right around the corner. And, um, you know, a little more 
philosophically, I guess, perhaps I'm, I'm very excited by the ability for fungi to allow our society, I think, to question things a bit more and to maybe not feel like we are so sure on something and to experiment and, you know, be curious and overcome by beauty. Mm, I think those are some of the most potent things fungi can teach us. There's different narratives on the human experience and how to interact with each other and interact as groups. There's a lot of lessons in there. And I, I love going to that metaphysical place with it because you can just keep going and going. There's all kinds of insights. And well, thank you both for just leaving us with such beautiful insights and information, getting us excited about Fundus. Like I said, it's an organization that I think has been on everyone's radar if you're in the mushroom community. So I love just getting the full picture, having it laid out and seeing how eminently approachable this project is. So thank you, Bill. Thank you, Gabriella, for coming on and joining us on the Mushroom Hour. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much, Darren. And everybody listening, feel free to reach out. We are, we are here. 